A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Yehudi Gever with Jewish History Soundbites, and today's episode is sponsored by Dafyaimi with Shol C. Greenwald, a fast-moving, energetic Dafyaimi shir. Delivered with clarity, that's very important, clarity. I'm very into clarity, and it's very, very clear. And intensity. The shear moves swiftly through the daf while still managing well to explain very well the difficult portions of the sugya and in a very clear fashion. So you get speed and clarity, which is pretty much the ideal. The shear is available daily on all podcast platforms and also on the All Daf app, and on Torah Anytime. All Daf app, which is this incredible Dafemi app, I've spoken about this uh, app on the in the past, so it's available on All Daf, um, a prominent and popular shear on All Daf, along with all the other wonderful shear, there are quite a few, um, but we're here specifically talking about Shol C. Greenwald's uh, shear, and in, in, in the, what I like about it is this the swift and clarity. And I'm going to explain to you why I like it. Because it's very versatile. You can use it, let's say it's your, you know, your first time looking at the DAF. So you want like, you know, the first overview before you're going to really like tackle it and sink your teeth in. You want a very quick overview. So if you're a first time looking at the DAF guy, you definitely want to go. This is your go-to shear. Let's say you have limited time that day. So if you're a limited time guy, you also want to go to that because it goes through it swiftly. Let's say you already did the Dafyaimi, but you want to review it and get the main points out of it. So it's the perfect review shear. So it has a lot of good uses, and that's why um, Reb Shol Greenwald's uh, uh, Dafyaimi shear is really recommended for the Dafyaimi. And it's an honor of Dafyaimi starting with Seches Gitten. Um, in the Dafyaimi, Seches Gitten, a very popular Masechta, um, many remember from their yeshiva days, so this is a perfect time to get back into Daf Yaimi and get back into Shaul Greenwald's shir um, and uh, and get your clear, swift Daf Yaimi today. Before I get into today's topic, and I want to tell you that today's topic, because of the honor of the Daf Yaimi starting Masechah's Gittin, I want to talk about some interesting stories, anecdotes, and perspectives on divorce and Gittin through Jewish history. Um, that is the topic of today. We just last week had an episode on demographics through Jewish history, which generated a huge amount of feedback, 
and I want to just bring one or two, um, you know, gems from the feedback I got um, from different listeners before we get into Gittin and divorce in Jewish history. So this is on the last feedback from the last episode on demographics. One um, email I got said as follows, I just want to point out one or two additional things regarding the explosive growth of the Jewish population through the 1800s. There is an additional big reason why specifically Eastern Europe and not either Central or Western Europe or the Sephardic Mizrahi world registered such enormous absolute and relative population growth through the 19th century. The reason was because Eastern Europe at that point was at the middle stage in the demographic succession, whereby birth rates remained high due to a culturally generated lag, even as death rates had started to plummet. And Eastern Europe's Jewish population had started to exceed that of the German-speaking lands and so forth a couple of centuries beforehand, whereas birth rates as well as death rates were pretty low in the German-speaking lands, etc., and Central Western Europe was thus already relatively advanced in the demographic succession, while both death rates and birth rates were still quite high, and and thus only at the start of the demographic succession in the Balkans, the Middle East, and North Africa. I hope that was clear. It was clear to me. And really, if you would put it on, like, plot it on a graph, then Eastern Europe would be at the tip, at the top of the graph, where birth rate is high um, because of a culturally generated lag, and death rates plummet because of advances in health technology, where the other two areas of the Jewish world in Western Europe, uh, birth rates had already become low, and in the North Africa and the Middle East, um, um, death rates were still high. So Eastern Europe was at the perfect point to have a population explosion. It's an excellent point, and I really thank the listener for submitting that. Another listener um, wrote a lot to me. I'm just going to take one little point that he that he wrote. He wrote, One demographic analysis that has always fascinated me, and I would love to see more discussing this topic, is the exponential and explosive growth of the Orthodox and specifically the Haredi world post-war in the 20th century. I have never seen any formal numbers, but my guess is that the Haredi slash Frum population today is about equal to pre-World War II. But we are growing exponentially, whereas pre-World War II that number was shrinking significantly and in many places very rapidly. I can't begin to tell you how this fact that is not publicized frustrates me. Because what the Frum world has achieved in the past 80 years is beyond miraculous. And that is a wonderful point to make, uh, more of a contemporary point, so I don't know if we'll explore it on this podcast, but since it's such a wonderful point, I decided to share it. Now let's get to today's topic, which in honor of the Dafyaimi, starting Masechus Gittin, um, we will talk about... Um, Gittin and divorce in Jewish history, and you know, divorce is a is a is a, it, it's a sad story. It's usually a sad human story. It's about a couple and a family that's falling apart, and with, it's a necessary evil very often. But it, it definitely is not uh, definitely not a, a um, you know a, a happy occasion. It's a, it's 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 usually somewhere between tragic or a necessary. A necessary tragic, <laughs> um, because sometimes it needs to be done. Um, so there were some elements of of, uh, 
of divorce and divorce law and Gittin that came up through Jewish history, which are fascinating stories. I devoted an entire episode once to the Get of Cleves. So I wanted to speak about some lesser known anecdotes and, and angles in Jewish history that came up through the world of Get. Um, interesting, there's some great people who were divorced uh, in the Jewish people throughout history. Uh, it's a uh, it's something also to know, just a, a small sampling. There are many others. I remember when uh, my colleague and I, Davi Safir, and I were writing an article for Mishpacha magazine a year or two ago about the Belzerebbe, of Aaron Rokeach, the great and holy Belzerebbe. So I had originally written in the first draft that when he, you know, his, his family was wiped out in the war and he miraculously had been able to escape to Palestine and he, um, and he, uh, and he remarried, and and didn't work out. Divorced shortly afterwards, and then remarried, remarried a third time, um, and then that lasted uh, until he passed away in 1957. And in fact, his wife uh, outlived him by many, many years, many decades. Um, so we were told that what I had included, that the Belzerebbe had been married a second time and got divorced shortly afterwards, is not allowed to be written, um, because then. And, you know, rocks would get thrown through our windows and, and our lives were at risk and whatever because no one's allowed to know about that. Um, so we obviously took it out. Um, I guess on my podcast I'm allowed to do whatever I want, so I'm saying it now. But I, I've just found it funny that that something like that, people would be so sensitive about that, you know, it's not allowed to be known. Um, Rabbi Yaakov Leiberbaum, the Lisa Rov, the Nesivis, the one who authored the Nesivis on Mishpat, was uh, divorced at one point in his life, as was the Beis Halevi, the founder of the Brisk dynasty, um, the Majid Sarebba, the famous one who escaped uh, to Vilna and then to the United States, the beginning of World War II, of Shol Yedidya Taub had been divorced too. There are a few other rabbis, Rechiel Yaakov Weinberg, the Sri Deish, was famously also the founder of the Beis Yaakov movement, Frau Sara Shanirer. Um, had gotten divorced. Apparently, her first husband. They were only married for a couple of months. She wasn't. He, he wasn't religious. Religious enough for her, uh, and that's that seems to be. Uh, indica- indica- sources indicated that was the reason for the divorce. So when she established Beis Yaakov, um, she was um, a divorced woman. Her, most of the time, she got remarried at the end of her life. It's like Landau. Another story. Rav Tzadik Hakain of Lublin almost got divorced. His wife wouldn't receive the get, and he eventually got a heter mayor rabbanim. Um, that's another fascinating story. I mentioned that on uh, an episode that uh, uh, about Reb Tzaddik. I'm not going to get into into more. There's a, there's a lot more on the list of of famous uh, great Jewish leaders who happen to have been divorced. Not and again, it's not condoning. Uh, God forbid this in any way. It's just a historical curiosity that I'm just mentioning as a sampling. Obviously, I'm not going to get into anything contemporary either. Um, But there are other historical examples as well. There's various aspects of the divorce process um, that are either stories in their own merit or at least prisms into different facets of Jewish life throughout Jewish history. One of the more prominent elements is, and this is obviously not limited to divorce cases, is the idea of igunas and permitting igunas to remarry. And again, like I said, it's not limited to divorce 
because it's when when a husband uh, dies and disappears, and there's no one who saw him die. Um, so obviously that's a guna. So it has nothing to do with divorce at all. But many of the the guna stories involve a get and obtaining a get from a recalcitrant husband or a husband who had traveled and disappeared. That that is figures prominently throughout Jewish history in solving guna questions and how it relates to get and divorce. Um, so I'm going to leave that aside, actually, because it's really its own topic. Agunas is a fascinating historical topic, and I'm going to try to focus on other elements of divorce and get throughout Jewish history. So first of all, we have names of places and people. That's an innocuous enough topic. It you know, shouldn't be, it shouldn't, uh, shouldn't, it's not too sensitive. But the halacha is very particular about how places, uh, the place where the get is written, um, how those places are spelled, and the names of the characters and subjects involved. Very, very particular that the spelling is accurate, and if the spelling is not accurate, it can invalidate the entire um, uh, uh, get, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, which terminates the marriage. Um, so the, the, the questions throughout history, there's fascinating rabbinic discussions about how places, uh, I'm going to focus on places less than people, how they're spelled. It's a very fun topic. It's a very exciting topic, especially since it relates to one of my favorite topics, to immigration. As soon as the, the Jewish people migrate to new lands, inevitably some of those people get divorced, and now Gittin are written in these places for the first time in history, and you have to establish the parameters of how to write it and where to write it and what the water source is, because you always have to write how it's related to that water source, because you need a natural uh, uh, landmark. You can't use political landmarks, which are subject to change. Um, and that's it's it's an, so, so how do you write it? And is there a precedent? Perhaps there was a Jewish community here once upon a time, and they already established a precedent of how to spell this place. Um, I remember a friend of mine told me, um, uh, I don't even remember what 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 uh, what the details were, but he he mentioned to me. He said, "How do you think you spell Knoxville, Tennessee, on a get?" So what do I know? I don't know any laws of getting. I said I, it's spelled with a K, but the K is silent. The question is, do silent letters appear in the spelling on a get? So he said, "Well, that's exactly the question." And uh, and, and and if some rabbi once upon a time assumed that silent letters are included on a get. And he wrote a get like that, then he established a precedent, and all subsequent rabbis who write Gittin in Knoxville, Tennessee, will have to include the silent prefix letter to it as well. Um, you also have empire, empires conquering new lands. So these existing communities now get new names. Let's say the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, you know, conquers the Balkans, uh, and uh, and the you know you're not going to use Serbian or Croatian or you, any of these um, other local names. You'll start having German names because of Austria being in charge. So now new Gitten are written. Do you use the new political entities' names or do you use the old names that were always used? Uh, so they have local languages and the empire's languages. You have the official names of the town, and then you have the Jewish names of the town, and sometimes Jewish names of the towns differed from what the official names were. And it's all over Poland like that. Um, I just landed a few weeks ago in Zhezhov, which is in Poland, and Jews called that town Raisha. 
Um, so there's many examples of that. I'm going to give one classic story in name spelling and related to migration and empires, um, especially in the areas of Hungary and parts of Romania, always had, so Hungary would have Hungarian names to the towns, Romania would have Romanian names to the towns. But then at one point in history, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Turkish Empire, had control of basically the entire Romania and also chunks of Hungary, if not the entire Hungary, for a short period of time. So, and then afterwards, it, most of those areas come under control of the Austria, Austro-Hungarian Empire. So again, you have the local names, you have the influence of the Ottoman Empire, and then you have the influence of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the latter empire, the Austro-Hungarian one, has German names. So many places with Ottoman influence um, had, because of the, Ottoman, uh, the existence of the Ottoman Empire in those areas, there was established Sephardic Jewish communities, especially in Romania, but also even in Hungary. Now, when Ashkenazim start migrating there in the 18th century, when it was under Austrian rule, so now you had, for the first time in history, Sephardic Jewish communities and Ashkenazi Jewish communities living together in Europe, uh, side by side. So Sephardic Jews, who had established the original communities in many of these areas, when the Ottoman Empire was there, had written their gitten with their spelling uh, of, the, of the way they pronounced the names of the, the towns. And now Ashkenazi Jews use the German names of the towns because they came from Austria. So do is there precedent there? Do, do the, does the Sephardic community using a different name of the town require the Ashkenazim who don't use that name of the town to now write their gitten in that fashion? Which is a fascinating question. It's a question of immigration. It's a question of Ashkenazi and Sephardic custom. It's a question of political questions of empires and what impact they have on the Jewish life. And there are responses from many rabbis of that time period on the, su on the subject. I specifically saw one from Remeir Eisenstadt, the Panama Iris, regarding what was then the Hungarian, uh, then part of the Hungarian capital of Budapest. Um, uh, today it's part, it's the city itself. We're talking about on the Buda side, there was an area um, that was called Buda, uh, and the local name, that's in Hungarian, it's Buda, and the local Sephardic community, when it was under the Ottoman Empire, called it, referred to it as Buda. But the Jews used the German name, which was Eufen, or Eufen, Eufen. Um, and so do you write it as Eufen, or do you write it as Buda in the Get? Um, and that was the question that he dealt with. Uh, there's many other examples. I just thought that this was the most interesting because I doubt that many of our listeners with Hungarian roots were aware that their beloved capital had a Sephardic tradition regarding the spelling of the name in divorce law. Another aspect of, of get which I find quite interesting is sometimes you have extenuating circumstances needed in order to get a get. Get it? Um, okay, that was pretty corny. So we need to get the get. Um, and in order, in order to prevent this woman from being an aguna, and then the and that that and, and we try to find every creative way to get the get to the woman, so she shouldn't be an aguna. And if there's a husband who traveled, who's far away, who's being obstinate and obnoxious, so we have to come with every creative solution to get the get. Um, and then that comes to 
The next question, and it's a timeless question, regarding utilizing modern technology in halachic development. What's the classic example from Getlaw? It's 19th century Galicia in the city of Brody. Brod, Reb Shleim Kluger, the greatest, perhaps one of the greatest for sure, uh, halachic authorities of the 19th century, not only in Galicia, but well beyond. He was renowned in, in, in all of Europe, and in, 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 I think a, close to a third of his halachic responses came from the Pale of Settlement in Russia, way far away from Galicia. Um, so he's the head of the rabbinical court of the Bezdin in Brody, not the town rabbi. Um, and he himself is a great story. He's worthy, worthy of at least one episode, if not more. So perhaps we'll get to Reb Shleim Kluger one day. I would love to. I have lots to say about him. Um, but he makes he issues this revolutionary psak permitting gitten to be sent in the mail. In 19th century Galicia, mail service was a new technology. And it was pretty efficient in Galicia um, at the time, Austro-Hungarian Empire. And... Rup Schleimer said, in, in certain circumstances, we can utilize the mail service to send a get. Um, and that was a technological advancement and a modern issue of using it. We can change the way getting are sent by using the government's mail service, which was a, a revolutionary concept. It generated controversy among his peers who many of them objected to the use of modern technology in this permissive fashion, even for uh, a get, even for you know permitted, permitting a woman to remarry so she shouldn't be in a guna. But Rav Shleim Kluger stuck to his guns and he allowed it. Um, another extenuating, extenuating circumstance uh, about get um, in order to prevent a guna was a tragic story during the Holocaust. Um, a, a rabbi, a Dutch rabbi, was the rabbi of the Friesland area in Holland before the war. Uh, his name was Rabbi Ram Shleim Levison. And during the war, like most of Dutch Jewry, and remember, 90% of Dutch Jewry is, 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 uh, is killed, is murdered by the Nazis in the, in the Holocaust. So the community is decimated. And the way they did it was they rounded up the Jews of Holland in 1942 and 1943, the Nazis and their Dutch collaborators, and they bring them to the Westerbork Transit Camp, where many of them, 19 trains, if I'm not mistaken, were sent to the Sobibor uh, death camp in eastern Poland, and the remainder were sent to Auschwitz, where almost all of them were also gassed upon arrival. So it was a terrible situation. And the Nazis, in their cynical and cruel deception that they're trying to deceive Dutch Jewry, as they did everywhere, they tried to make them not know where they were being headed. And in fact, the Westerbork transit camp, there was a train station that had said on it, um, uh, uh, Westerbork Auschwitz, Auschwitz Westerbork, as if it's a round trip. Um, but that wasn't the only thing they used to deceive the Dutch Jews. They also um, took the adult uh, working age men first. Why? Because they said, they told the Dutch Jews, we're just taking Jews for slave labor in the East. So they took people who could work um, first. And afterwards, when, you know, the, also the strongest people were around, the heads of the homes were around, and it was easier for them to deport the women and children and the elderly and sick afterwards. But the first people who they deported were the adult men. Um, adult men are married with children. And Instead of panicking and, 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 and falling apart, these responsible men to their families, and this is the heroism of the Jewish people, simple, regular people, they approach their rabbi, Rav Ram Shleim Levison, 
in the Vesterberg camp and they say, can you do something that our wives shouldn't be igunas? Because we have no idea where we're being sent to. Somewhere in the East, slave labor by the Nazis. Who knows if we're ever going to come back? And they were right. that None of them were going to come back because they were going to be gassed. But they didn't know that. Um, so Ram Shleim Levison writes these Gitten al these conditional gets, and I don't know any of the intricacies of the halacha involved, but I know that it was these gitten who, I mean, there were some, very few women survived also, but some women survived with these documents that Rumshleim Levison, who himself was killed uh, shortly afterwards, um, along with, along with his community, um, in the East. Uh, so he prepared these documents and any women who survived and presented them at the Rabbanut in Tel Aviv or in the London Besden or wherever they went in the United States, I don't know, whatever it was, they were accepted. And based on those documents, these women were able to get remarried. See, he, pres- he created these gitten altnai, these conditional gets. Interesting that when I used to guide in Yad Vashem, they had originals, those, some of those original gets that Rav Ramshleim Levison wrote in the exhibit right there in Yerushim. I would always point them out to the groups. What's even more interesting is that I had been pointing this out to groups for years. And one time I had the occasion to interview a survivor in Rishon Lutzion, a religious survivor. Um, and uh, I didn't pay attention to the fact that his name was Levison. It didn't really register. And I'm sitting with him and interviewing him also on behalf of Yad Vashem. And he's telling me his whole story. And he's telling me how he grew up in Holland and that his father was a big rabbi, and and uh, and I'm still not getting it. I'm not in the zone. And all of a sudden, uh, he tells me about his, what his what he he heard from survivors, what his father did for them in the Vesterbork uh, transit camp. This fellow had been hidden uh, during the war. That's how he survived um, by a Dutch uh, person who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. Righteous among the nations. So. All of a sudden, it clicked. I said, wow, that's your father? He's the famous one who did those Gitan Altanai? And he's like, yeah, that's my father. So I heard it from his son, the same story again. That's a heroic and fantastic story uh, of Gitan as well. An even stranger get story I bumped into, and I'm not even really sure I, I fully understand, it involves the Chassam Soifer. Um, though the Chassam Soifer was something of a Kabbalistic uh, himself, he was somewhat of a Kabbalist himself, being that he was a student of Rabnas and Adler, which I believe that I discussed in a recent episode of Chassam Seifer. But the Chassam Seifer at the same time was very wary of incorporating Kabbalistic or mystical concepts and customs into an official halachic communal framework. Why? Because the Chassam Seifer was always wary of changes in custom and, and deviating from the norm in the communal sense, because that was his whole mode of leadership. And there are several examples of how he opposed such attempts at what he felt was the misuse of Kabbalah and the dangers of concretizing it into a communal halachic standard. And one of the most bizarre ones I saw of his opposition to these attempts was there was this uh, proposition by the rabbi of Brody, who was a grandson of the Neide Behuda of Cheskel Landau in Prague, so his grandson, Rabbi Lazar Landau, who was a bit of a, uh, he was a bit, he was a bit suspect in the eyes of Chassam Seifer, also in Rabbi Shleim Kluger, they suspected him of certain progressive tendencies, but either way, this Rabbi Lazar Landau wanted to use some sort of Kabbalistic justification to somehow permit the writing of a get on Shabbos under certain circumstances. Now I'm not what I'm not really sure what this Kabbalistic dispensation was to justify writing a get on Shabbos, 
But it, that's what it seems from the sources. And the Chassam Soifer was understandably quite opposed. He felt it was a misuse of Kabbalah, and therefore the Chassam Soifer was opposed to writing a get on Shabbos based on that uh, understanding and that reading of this Kabbalistic source. Another fascinating story involving the Chassam Soifer um, and Gittin was an encounter between him um, when he was on his way to Matzdorf uh, in 1798, becoming the rabbi of Matzdorf, this is quite some time before he became rabbi of Preshburg. But on the way to Matzdorf in Bergenland, he passed through Preshburg, which would be his future rabbinical position and achieve his fame later on. But this is before he knew that. Um, but he's passing through Preshburg, and he meets his predecessor, what it turned out to be, um, in the Preshburg rabbinate. His name was Rabbi Shulam Igra. Rameshulam Igra was one of the greatest rabbis of his generation in the 18th century, um, and he's he's actually buried in, next to the Chassam Soifer in that underground cave, even though no one goes to Rameshulam Igra, they all go to the Chassam Soifer, but he's really buried, they're buried next to each other. In any event, um, Rameshulam Igra was a Polish Galicianer uh, rabbi who was imported to Preshburg uh, to be the rabbi. Um, and... Um, a great leader, a great Torah scholar, he's a, um, a, a teacher of the Rabbi Lepalavik Tzaisa Chayshen, the Nesivis, Rabbi Akulayrubam Lisa, his nephew, Rabbi Naftali of Rapshitz, and many, many other people. So he was a quite a, a renowned uh, rabbinical personality, Rabbi Shulam Egra, and the Chassam Seifer, um, who came from a very different background. He came from Frankfurt. He wasn't from Galicia. He wasn't from Poland. He was a yucky, a German Jewish background in Frankfurt, an old prestigious family. You know, different milieu, very different uh, environment that he came from, and very different worldviews and very different cultural geographic backgrounds. So this is an interesting encounter. And the Chassam Soifer, in this, when he they meet and they're discussing different you know halachic issues, so the Chassam Soifer was quite surprised that Rameshulam Igra had a whole complicated procedure for writing and delivering a get in Preshburg. Why? Because Rabbi Shalom Igra refused to rely on local witnesses. You have to have two witnesses for a get. And Rabbi Shalom Igra did not want to rely on local witnesses from his own community to be for the get. And because of that, he had built this very complicated procedure about how to go about writing and delivering a get because he did not want to rely on local witnesses. And the Psalm Saber says, this is your own community. And they're a religious community. This is before the secularization of, of Central Europe. Primarily, that already has begun, but you know, Preshburg was, for the most part, a a, a, uh, a religious community, is still a Torah observing community at this time, in 1798. Um, so why wouldn't you rely on a local witness? And the Chassam Seifer asked him, wouldn't it just be simpler to to do so from Pressburg Jewry? And he receives this shocking response from Rabbisholm Egra, this Polish rabbi who is an immigrant to Central Europe. Rameshulam Egra says they're all not kosher witnesses. None of them are kosher witnesses for a get. How could it be the entire community of, of, of Preshburg is not kosher witnesses for a get? Rameshulam Egra explains because in Preshburg they're clean-shaven. Uh, most people walk around clean-shaven, so he suspects that if they're clean-shaven, they must shave with a razor. And if they shave with a razor, which is a violation of the Torah prohibition to shave with a razor... So in Rameshulam Igra's opinion, anyone who shaves with a razor invalidates them from being a witnesses to a get. So remember that in 1978, like I said before, Preshburg is not secularized. For the most part, this is a religious community. 
So the Chassam Sefer was shocked. He launched into a long defense, listen to this, of shaving. Uh, the Chassam Sefer, having come from this Ashkenaz German lands, where people shaved, um, he saw nothing wrong with it. And he said, there's no grounds for suspicion. People shave in a kosher way. They don't use a razor. It's just the custom to shave. You've never seen it before because you come from Poland. In the 1700s in Poland, no one shaved. Everyone kept beards. Rabbi Sholomigra was not accustomed to seeing that in Galicia. So he assumed that if someone does shave, then it's done in the privacy of one's own home. And then it's grounds for suspicion that it's done in a forbidden fashion because there's no way to prove it. So if it's done in a forbidden fashion with a razor, then he can't sign on a get. He can't be an aide for a get. So the Chassam Seifer launches into a history lecture, and this is written in a chub of the Chassam Seifer. He says this from the, he goes he goes back to the Crusades. He goes into this whole history lecture. It's an amazing Chassam Seifer. He says the Jews of Ashkenaz in Germany have been shaving for centuries, and it was because of persecution and Crusades they needed to look like their surroundings. And he said therefore this is a holy ancient custom of Ashkenaz to shave. And there's nothing wrong with it. An amazing response. Um, now, this tshuva of the Chassam Seifer became very uncomfortable subsequently for those who saw themselves as continuing the legacy of the Chassam Seifer, and yet they had Eastern European origins, and therefore were at the same time very protective about their beards and not huge fans of shaving. So what do you do with this Chassam Seifer, who we, you know, we are in awe of everything the Chassam Seifer wrote, um, and we follow his legacy, but yet he's has this incredible defense of shaving. So what we what some do is what is customarily done in these type of situations, and that is to claim that it's all a forgery. Um, but it's not, unfortunately. So some Seifer did have this <laughs> defense of shaving. So it's not really a get story because it doesn't directly involve getting because the only Shalom Igor is only using that to establish. Uh, that they're they're not valid witnesses for the get. It's really a story more about shaving than about getting. But but what this getting aspect of it is what instigated the whole story, and that's how the Chassam Seifer found out about it. And that is the social context which lurks behind this get psak, and it's quite fascinating. These are just some get tidbits. Um, so uh, to get us into the dafyemi of Masechah's getting mode, and especially with the sheer. Um, of of, uh, of, uh, of of Shaul Greenwald, and I hope you enjoy it. And this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.